And you know, I heard about a conversation that took place this morning between a husband and a wife. The, uh, the husband woke up and said, uh, I'm not going to church today. And the wife said, well, well, why not? He said, well, I stayed up late watching the ball game last night. <laughs> and it's daylight savings time, so we lost an hour. It's cold and rainy. It's just a perfect day to sleep in. So I think I'm going to stay home from church. And the wife said, you can't stay home from church. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the husband said, you tell me one reason I can't stay home from church. And Gene said, Al, you got to go lead the choir. Well, if you stayed up late watching the game last night, I will be, I'm telling the truth, I went to sleep. I didn't, I didn't stay up late watch the game uh, last night. I read about it this morning, and I'm, I'm sad like everybody else. But, you know, now the regular season's over, and now the NCAA tournament is about to begin. How many of you are going to watch the NCAA tournament? How many of you could care less about the NCAA tournament? Okay. Well, the, in, in the tournament, what happens is now there's 68 teams, and they're going to whittle it down until they get to a champion. And... And there's a, there's a mission uh, of every team now. I've heard all kind of different coaches say uh, what their mission is now that the big tournament is here. Their mission each round is what they say, survive and advance. Just get through somehow and win the game and advance. That's the mission of teams in the NCAA tournament. I got to thinking about some other mission statements that are out there. I've seen a few, probably like you have, and... I looked some of these up on the internet. For example, I, I looked up the mission statement of Walmart. You ever been to Walmart? You know that Walmart has a mission statement. And uh, the mission statement of Walmart is this. Saving people money so they can live better. I thought somebody would say amen to that. All right, so anyway. That's Walmart. Then I looked up uh, Duke Health Systems. We're in and out of the hospital all the time up at Duke. A lot of our members are there. If you're there... We'll come to see you. We'll pray with you and try to encourage you all we can. And so much of, of life revolves around what happens with, with our health. So I looked up Duke Health and their, their mission statement. And uh, their mission statement, according to their website, is simply this. Advancing health together. That's the mission of Duke Health. I thought it was pretty good. But I thought, what about Coke? You know, Coca-Cola has got a... Do they have a mission statement anywhere? So I went on their website to see if there was a mission statement for Coca-Cola, they had one of the longer mission statements out there, so you may or may not agree, but the mission statement of Coca-Cola is this. To refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit. That's what they said. To, that's not all either, by the way. It goes on to say, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and actions. And thirdly, to create value and make a difference. Who knew? Coca-Cola. <laughs> then I thought, I'm going to look up the mission statement for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. What are they all about over there? Watch out over here. Watch out, my state friends over there. Officially, UNC Chapel Hill's mission statement is this. To serve as a center for research, scholarship, and creativity and to teach a diverse community of undergraduate, graduate, and professional students to become the next generation of leaders. If we can get them to go to class. No, just nothing. <laughs> I thought, I suggested that's a good mission statement. Then I looked up NASA. NASA, NASA, you know, spaceships, rocket ships. They have a mission statement. Their mission statement is this. 
to pioneer the future in space exploration, scientific discovery, and aeronautics research. That's a pretty good mission statement. Make you want to be an astronaut. And then there's another mission statement related to NASA that I'm much more familiar with from a TV show called Star Trek. You ever heard of Star Trek before? <laughs> What's the mission statement of Star Trek? Who can say it with me? To boldly go where no man has ever gone before. Now, now, Al didn't pipe up with Walmart or Duke or Coca-Cola or UNC, but you throw Star Trek up there and Al is your guy. <laughs> what about the church? Does the church have a mission statement? Well, our mission statement for the church we find in the Bible. You see it there on the screen. Many people look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as our mission statement. And uh, there in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus is speaking just before he ascends to heaven, and he says these words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Put the last uh, back up there, if you would, real quick. Uh, you see there that the mission statement of the church is to make disciples. That's what the scripture mandates the church. If we're going to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to follow the mandate and the mission that's given to us, not by vote, not by deacons, not by pastors, but by the Lord himself. Amen? So making disciples. Now what about Ridgecrest Baptist Church? That's our next slide up there. Ridgecrest Baptist Church, we have a mission statement as well. Uh, it's incorporated into our logo. And so you can tell uh, on the logo there, uh, our name, Ridgecrest Baptist Church. And our mission statement is that we would glorify God by leading people to follow Jesus. Leading people to follow Jesus is another way of saying making disciples. And we know from the scripture that when we make disciples, we are bringing glory to God, which is the purpose uh, and the mission of the church. We think to glorify God by leading people to follow Christ. I hope you think we're on the right track because that's the track that we are on. Well, what about the mission statement of Jesus? Did Jesus have a mission or a stated statement of his mission? There are many places in the Bible perhaps you would look to if you want to say that there was a mission statement of Jesus. But, and and as, we, as we get there, I just draw your attention to the fact that last week we begin looking at a series of messages that I'm calling Discovering Jesus. So if you're a, a longtime follower of Christ, and my hope is that, that the things that I'm sharing over these weeks will, will supplement and encourage and remind you and motivate you towards living out your faith and having a stronger faith. That's always the goal as, as I share with you. But I'm also aiming that if you have never encountered Jesus, and you may know him by name only, you may have never gone to church, you may have never heard or read in the Bible anything at all about Jesus, and you've heard this saying and that saying, and you don't know what's true and what's not true, you may be asking the questions, you know, who is he and what is he all about? So last week we talked about the identity of Jesus when he asked the question of his followers, who do people say that I am? And Peter spoke up accurately and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is God. We talked about that last week. Well, this week we're going to talk about the mission 
of Jesus. Why did he come? Why did he come to earth? If he is God's son, and the Bible says he is, I certainly believe that he is, and you're here, I'm going to assume you believe that he is. If he is the son of God, what in the world was he doing coming to earth? And we find the answer, among other places, in Luke 19 and verse number 10. In Luke 19 and verse number 10, we find Jesus making his way through Jericho. And uh, as he's making his way through Jericho, the crowds are out there and people are, are pressing in to see and, and to hear from him, to catch a glimpse of him. His, 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 his fame is growing and, and his notoriety is growing. And, and among those trying to see Jesus is this wee little man. Anybody know his name? Zacchaeus, wee little man. Uh, and so Zacchaeus, the tax collector, nobody liked him because he had turned against his own people by becoming a tax collector. He ran ahead. He climbed up in the what kind of tree? The sycamore tree, and uh, for the Lord he wanted to see, right? So you, you know the song too, right? So, so he was looking for Jesus, and Jesus came walking by, and without Zacchaeus hollering at Jesus, Jesus stopped in the midst of that crowd, all those people around, and he turned and looked up in that tree and saw that wee little man Zacchaeus sitting up there, and he said, Zacchaeus, you know the song, you come down, why? Because I'm going to your house today. Now, that's what the song says, and the song is certainly accurate, but the rest of the story is that in verse number 9 of Luke chapter 19, where we find this story, Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come. Somebody say amen to that. Salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus says what I believe could be very well be his statement of purpose, his mission statement, and that is in Luke 19 and verse number 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So as you may have questions yourself, you may have opportunity in conversation where someone would ask you the question, well, who is Jesus and what's he all about? You could very simply say, based on last week's message and today's message, well, let me tell you very quickly, Jesus is God who came to earth and he came to earth so that he might seek and save that which is lost. That's his identity. And that's his mission. So let's explore what the scripture says about the mission of Jesus. We know, you know many things about him from the scripture. Many things about him are, are out floating around. Some are accurate, some are not accurate. But let's look at what the scripture says about this mission statement of why Jesus came into the world. To seek the lost and to save the lost. Let's look first of all at what it means that Jesus came into the world to seek the lost. The Bible tells us throughout the pages of Scripture that ever since Adam and Eve were created and sinned against God and judged by God and banished from the garden by God and now pay the penalty for their sins in their physical body and being put at odds against God, we know that from that time forward, mankind has inherited a sinful nature. We're born into sin. We're born separated from God. We're born in need of a Savior who will come and rescue us and return us to that right relationship with God. And so from Genesis forward, that's the condition. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are hints and there are prophets and there are teachings and there are preachings all saying, He's coming, He's coming, and He's coming. When He's coming, here's where He will be born. Here's how He will live His life. Here's how He will pay the penalty for our sins. Here's how he will make us right with God all before Jesus was ever born and came onto the scene. 
In the New Testament, we read these words about seeking the lost. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 14, it says, The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. When we think about the mission statement of Jesus, this is another way from the Bible of re-saying exactly what Jesus' mission is. Seek the lost and save the lost. And we know that He came seeking because He was sent. He didn't just show up one day. He didn't, as Bart Ehrman says in his book, How Jesus Became God. He didn't just become God because his followers thought, well, let's just make a story and add some things to it. No, before the world was ever created, God was preparing to send his son into the world to be the savior of the world. He was sent by God. And all of this throughout his life, Jesus demonstrated like no other that he was indeed God in human form. If you know anything at all about the New Testament, if you read the pages of the Gospels, you'll find that, that his birth was miraculous. You, you know that as he was, was, was growing up, uh, he was somehow different than others. You know that as he began his ministry, as he was tempted, as he was filled with the Spirit, as he went around about teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, as he healed the sick and gave sight to the blind, as he fed the multitudes miraculously, as he calmed the storm, as he raised the dead... And as he himself was raised from the dead, demonstrating that Jesus indeed is the Son of God who was sent into the world to seek after that which is lost. Now, many places to turn. I won't have time to get to all of them. But, but one place that, that I love uh, in, in regards to seeking the lost is in Luke chapter 15. The Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Don't have time to read the whole thing. But, but in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables or three stories about, uh, about seeking that which is lost. The first we see is in verses 1 through 7, where Jesus tells a story about a lost sheep. A lost sheep. He says, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost, which one of you would not leave the 99 and go looking for the one? Now, we might be tempted to say, well, well, listen, I've still, that's still 99%. I think 99% is good, right? When I was in school, I'd love to have 99% on anything I got. I better say that accurately. I would have loved to have 99% on anything that I had in school. If you're a sports person, if you, if you are a baseball player, you get on base 99% of the time, think about how awesome you would be. If you're a, a football player and you throw passes, your quarterback, you would love to complete 99% of your passes. You, you'd love to remember the guys when, when our wives send us to the grocery store. We'd love to, only, uh, to, we'd love to get 99% of the things right, wouldn't we? Amen? So to have 100 and, and still have 99, I mean, that, that's pretty good. But Jesus said, you got a hundred sheep and leave the 99 to go look for the one, the one, the one who wandered off, the one who wasn't paying attention, the one who, who got away, the one who, who just kind of wasn't looking where he was going and just kind of, kind of wound up that way. Which one of you would not go and get the one that was lost. And Jesus said this, he would go and get that lamb, and when he brought him back, he, he would say, verse 7, Rejoice with me, because there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He drew that, that analogy between finding a sheep, which they could all identify with, and the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, has come into the world to seek and to save the lost, 
And that one lost sheep, you know who that was? That was me. That one lost sheep, that was you. And Jesus makes the point here that, that every person is important to God. And Jesus came into the world to seek after every single person. And sometimes he has to go to, to great lengths to find them. But whoever you are and where, wherever you are, Jesus has come into the world to find you. That you might be saved and that there might be rejoicing. And that there might be rejoicing in heaven. You know, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about rejoicing in heaven um, except for the fact when a lost sinner like us when we repent, Al mentioned earlier, do you remember the time when, when you trusted Christ as your Savior? I remember my time. Uh, if you're a Christian, I hope you remember your time. If you're not a Christian yet, I hope you will remember that day when very soon, even if not today, that you will come to that place of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And, and, and when you do, understand and recognize this, there's a party that takes place in heaven. When a lost sinner comes to faith in Christ, because in heaven they realize perhaps even more than we do, we forget sometimes and we neglect sometimes and we fail to, to realize sometimes the, the, the significant price that is paid when you are a sinner and you die in your sins and face the judgment of God. There's a price, a terrible price to be paid for your sins. And there's a terrible price that was paid so that you could be delivered from your sins. It is available to all. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But that one sheep is seen and sought and brought back and is a party that takes place in heaven. Secondly, he tells the story of a lost coin. In verses 8 through 10, we find these words. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Notice that phrase, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And so here we find another earthly picture that we can identify with. You ever lost something and you had to go look, the house, you turn the house upside down to try to find that one thing that you've lost. It might have been something like a pair of socks or one sock that gets lost or, or a, a, pair of, uh, a pair of pants or, or something. But imagine if you lost 10% of your wealth. We don't know how much all this was, but let's say 10% of your wealth. And it was somewhere in the house. And, and, and you can't find it. And, and, and over time, you, you, you worry about it. You think about it. You go looking for it. You still can't find it. Your friend says, hey, what's wrong? And you say, well, I, I've lost 10% of my wealth. And I can't find it. And the friend says, I'm going, let's, let's pray about this thing together. And you pray about it. And, and you still go look. And, and, and soon, your other friends know. And your family knows. And, and your heart broke because you've lost 10% of your wealth. And then you find it. Found it. And what do you do? You go tell your friends, you know, we, we, I, I told you I was so downhearted because I lost 10% of my wealth. Here it is. Come on over and let's celebrate. I'm going to spend it on a party. <laughs> Come on over to the house. We're going to have a big time rejoicing and celebrating because I found that 10% of my wealth that I had lost. And Jesus, using that phrase, seek diligently until she finds it is a picture of how when we're lost and separated from God, not because God lost us, but because we sinned against God and have separated ourselves from Him, but He still loves us so much that He comes looking for us diligently until He finds us. And when He finds us, there are those times when we say, no, I don't want you to find me. 
Those other times when we run and we grasp him and we respond in faith to him. And we say, thank God you did find me. But notice at the end of that little story again, and when, when the sheep was found, Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons. When the coin is found in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I don't know much about angels. The Bible gives us just a glimpse so that we don't fully know. There are things we do know. There are things that we don't know. But one of the things we do know is that angels are are somewhat like a cheerleader. And they're pulling for us. And they're saying to us, you can do it. You can believe. You can have faith. And when one person repents and comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those angels, I don't know exactly how they do it. I'm going to use an earthly analogy. They jump up, high five, and, 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 and fist bump, and, and, and give the, the hoo-hoo, and all that they do, all that we would do. They do that in heaven when a sinner repents because one more has been found when Jesus has diligently searched. Then there's a third story about the seeking of Jesus, his mission to seek. And that's a story we know of as either the lost son or the prodigal son. Uh, That's the main focus of Luke chapter 15. It's a human analogy, not a sheep or a coin, but it conveys the same message of lostness, of seeking, of finding, and rejoicing. And so the lost son, uh, in the story, the son rebels against his father, demands his inheritance, and goes away, never to come back. And he loses everything in his immoral living. And then he does come back, humbly repentant, and hoping just to be taken in as a servant. And what the story tells us is that as the son is is still a long way off, the father sees him. And the father sees him because the father, ever since the son has left, the father has been looking for the son. He's been looking for the day when the son would come back. He's been looking for that day when his son would turn and would come back, when the son would repent and come back home. And when he sees his son, the son's coming back humbly in repentance, and the father sees him. And you know what the father does? The father doesn't sit there and wait and say, "Uh uh-huh, I told you you'd come back. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you owe me 990, you owe me, you're going to work, have a lot of work to do around here. The father ran to the son. And the father threw his arms around the son. And the father hugged his son and kissed his son and welcomed his son and reinstated his son and did all the things he had every right to kick him out and tell him never to come back. But because he loved him so much, he welcomed him back and put him right back in the position that he was. He wasn't about to even hear about his son becoming a hired servant. No, you're my son. You were lost, and now you are found. So here's another picture of lostness and seeking and finding and then rejoicing. In verse 24, we see the, the, the celebration again when the father says, My son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And so in these three pictures, in one of many places in the Bible, we see the mission of Jesus to seek those who are lost. 
to seek those who are apart from God, to seek those who, who have rebelled against God. And, and, and it's so easy for us, if we're not careful, it's so easy for us inside the walls of the church to sit inside the walls of the church and forget about those outside the church. Somebody say amen to that. If we're not careful, we'll start seeing how those outside the church live and we'll turn our nose up at them and we'll, just, we'll dismiss them and we'll, we'll write them off and we'll say, well, well they, they're never going to come to faith in Christ. They're, they're never going to turn. And we're not even going to waste our time going and talking to them or, or sharing with them or, or they've chosen this or they've done that. And do you know how immoral they are here and, and over there and over yonder? And we can make a long list of things. And listen, it turns my stomach like it turns your stomach. But those are people that Jesus is diligently seeking. He came into the world to diligently seek that which is lost. And it's all of us. All of us. So that's the first part of the message of Jesus, to seek the lost. The second part is to save the lost. It, you know, it, it's one thing to go looking, and then you get there. What are you going to do? You know, it's not, like a, it's not like a game when Jesus shows up, he finds us, and he says, Tag, you're it, now come find me. There's some in religious circles that think that's how religion is, that, that, that we have to go looking now for him and try to find him because he's hiding from us when that's not the case. He has found us so that he might save us. And the problem for a lot of people is that they don't think they need saving. They think they're fine just like they are. They think that, you know, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. You live your life. I'll live my life. God is nowhere to be found be saved, what do I need to be saved from? I'm fine just like I am. I used to think that way, didn't you? We've got to be real careful not to point fingers at all these folks outside when that, in reality, that's who we were as well. I used to think I was fine just like, oh, I didn't need Jesus. I didn't, church, I don't need church. But Jesus came not only to seek us, but when he finds us, he came to save us. In 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 21, we find a verse that I've, I've heard it called the great exchange. It shows how in His righteousness and wrath, God must punish sin, and we're sinners. So we're sunk. We're sinners, and God punishes sin, so we're sunk. But an exchange took place so that we did not have to be punished for the sin that we find ourselves in, that is under the judgment of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 mentions it. He says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now let me talk about that just for a second, because it can, it can just slide right over our heads if we're not careful. Notice the first three words, for our sake. So this, this, this verse of Scripture, this passage of Scripture, this understanding of the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost, it is not for God's sake. God didn't need to do it. It's for our sake. And let me personalize it and say it was for my sake. For my sake. Okay, that's where it starts. He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus. So God took Jesus, his only son, and remember we've already talked about how he sent him into the world to be the Savior. He took him and turned him into sin. He allowed all the sins that were mine and all the sins that were yours and all the sins that are theirs and he took them and put them all upon Jesus and God made him who knew no sin to become sin 
so that those of us who were in sin could have our sins removed and be righteous. This great exchange took place. God punished His Son for sins that we committed in order that we could be set free and become righteous like God. Notice in, the, in that verse there that, that in Him, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, that, that uh, uh, God made Him to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's all about Jesus and it is through Jesus this exchange takes place and it's all for our sake from God that we might be set free and become righteous like God. That's what salvation is. Now, how did he do that? The Bible tells us in many places, and, and I don't have time to go into all. I want to share a few of them with you. But it's all done in the cross. We'll celebrate the cross here in just a few weeks. We celebrate the cross all the time, but here in just a couple of weeks, as Easter comes, we celebrate the cross and because it is on the cross that Jesus died. It is from the cross that his body was removed. It is in the ground that his body was laid. And it was in, from the tomb that his body was raised from the dead. That, that he is alive forevermore. We celebrate that. That gruesome, terrible thing that happened. We celebrate it because of the results that it brings us. It allows us, who were sinners, to become the righteousness of God. That's the cross. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 20... In verse 28, Jesus again talks about his mission. He talks about it a lot in the Bible, actually. And Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we see another way of, of, of shedding light on salvation or of, of saving us or delivering us from our sins. He says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. Or a ransom is a price that is paid for freedom. And in the days of the New Testament, when, when, a, when, a, when a slave was purchased out of slavery and into freedom, the price that was paid, the dollar amount that was paid, was, was called a ransom. I've been ransomed, you could say, if you were bought out of slavery and into freedom. You could also say it this way. I was redeemed. A price was paid for my freedom. I was stuck under the yoke of slavery, but a, but a price was paid, and now I've been set free. And we're all under the yoke of the slavery of sin. And Jesus is saying here that I'm going to pay the price. What amount would he have to pay? He owned everything. He's the creator of the world. But all of creation could not pay for the sins of mankind. He gave himself on the cross. That, that, that phrase there for he came to give his life as a ransom for which means instead of, in place of, in exchange of, many. Now, he paid the price for all, but all are not going to come. Oh, that they would, but all are not going to come. But for all who will come, believing and, and, and trusting in Christ as their Savior, for all who will come, the ransom has been paid to set them free. For, for when, when I came to faith in Christ, I realized the ransom has been paid for Mark. And I've been now set free and I've become the righteousness of God because of the price that was paid for me. Romans 5.8 talks about that price. It says God demonstrated his love for us in this. Here's, here's a picture of God's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place and for our sins. That great exchange took place through Jesus. In Romans 10.9 it says, if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jesus came to seek and to save. Saving comes when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. What we're saying by that statement is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth, who bore the penalty of my sins and paid my ransom when He died on the cross and was buried, but through His resurrection from the dead, I have been set free from my sins and I have been saved. Romans 10, 13 tells us, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whether you're red, yellow, black, white, blue, green, Martian, well, there's no Martians, whether American or Chinese, wherever your nationality may be, but whoever you are, however far apart you are, however far you've wandered away from the flock, He will diligently seek you, and if you turn to Him, He will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, we see it again. Christ died for our sins in our place in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It says it again in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed, there's that word redeemed or ransomed. Christ paid the price for us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's that great exchange again. He became what we were so that we could become what He is. 1 Peter 2.24 talks about it. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. We're saved from sin, delivered to righteousness. By his wounds, it says, you've been healed. His wounds. He bore the penalty for our sins. Peter 3.18 says it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous Christ in the place of the unrighteous, which is us, uh, that he might bring us to God. That's why he came, that he might bring us, that he might gather us up, that he might present us to God and say, here they are, Lord, the ones who have believed, the ones who have repented, the ones who have turned from their sins and embraced the gospel. These are the ones so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9, a scene from heaven, beautiful scene from heaven, it says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is Jesus, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open the seal, for you were slain, there's the cross, and by your blood, there's the cross, you ransomed, there's the price that was paid, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The price that was paid in the ransom was the blood of the Son of God, the, the, the Lamb of God, who gave Himself as a sacrifice that we might be set free. That's the mission of Jesus. And so the message of the Bible concerning the mission of Jesus is this. That the Father sent the Son to be the Savior. The, the, the mission of Jesus is that He came into the world to seek the lost and to save the lost and to make salvation available to everyone, whoever you are and wherever you are. And Jesus fulfilled His mission. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We shared this last week, I believe. It said, after making purification for sins. In other words, 
after Jesus had gone to the cross, after Jesus had been put to death and, and buried and raised from the dead, after Jesus had ascended up to heaven, after Jesus had accomplished everything that he was to accomplish, it says in, in Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And sitting down signifies completion. Everything was done. Nothing else had to be done. Jesus sat down because salvation was complete. And from that point forward, the message of the church, the message of, of the gospel is that salvation is available to all. But understand something. It's not automatic. It's available to you, but it's not given to you automatically. All you have to do is receive it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. It's all, all that's been taken care of. You just simply have to receive it. And so now we come down to the bottom of, of the message here. The conclusion part of the message is, is, is this. Yes, Jesus has a mission to seek and to save the lost. And he's done that. And now we have to ask the question, what about me? What is my mission? What do I do now that Jesus has come and done this for me? What do I do? And to answer that question, I want to call your attention to the very first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Jesus' first recorded preaching there. His message. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he said this, The time is fulfilled. It's here. The kingdom of God is at hand, right here with us. And then Jesus said these words, Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The message of God's love. The message of God's deliverance. The message of God's salvation. So what is the message for us? What is the mission for us? What do we do in response to the mission of Jesus? There's two things he says here. We repent and we believe. To repent means simply this. It's a change in direction. You're walking in this direction. To repent means you turn and walk the other direction. It's to make a U-turn of life. Not physically, although there's a physical implication because you don't do the things you used to do, but it's a heart U-turn. It's a heart repentance. You turn from sin and from self and from saying, I'm fine like I am, because you realize, I need a Savior, and Jesus is my Savior. So I can't keep walking in the way I'm walking in my life and be a, a follower of Christ. So I've got to turn from my direction in walking after myself and after my, my pride and after all the things I want. I've got to turn and walk towards the way of Jesus. That's repenting, turning away from a life of sin, and then turning to Jesus, that's the U-turn. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said these words, and they're very clear. He said, unless you repent, unless you make this turn, you will all likewise perish. He's telling the story of people that had died in some terrible accident. But he says, listen, unless you spiritually turn from your sins and follow Christ, unless you turn from your sins and believe in me, unless you do that, you're going to perish. You're going to, you're going to be eternally separated from God unless you do this. So repent is the first part, and then to believe. Well, what does it mean to believe? To believe, it means to have a life-changing belief resulting in a life change. A life-changing belief resulting in a change of life, a life change in you. In, in John chapter 3, starting at verse 16, perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible, people that, that know nothing else about the Bible know John 3, 16. And that's a good thing, but there's a continuation beyond verse 16, and I want to share with you in this context of what my mission is in repenting and believing. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There's the mission. There's the sending. All of it's still right there in John 3.16 as well. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, there's that word belief. Jesus said, repent and believe so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. There we see that when we believe, we're delivered from perishing. We're delivered from uh, eternal separation from God. We're delivered from the judgment of God and we're delivered into eternal life with God. So that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's a condemnation of sin. There's a condemnation of those that are walking outside of God. There's this condemnation that comes from, from being a sinner that, that, that we're all under this wrath of God. But God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn us. That was already taking place. He sent Jesus into the world that we might be saved. Why did Jesus come into the world? To seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. How is it that we escape condemnation? It's not by some great act of religious service. It's not by some great spiritual insight. It's not some great amount of money. It's not some, some great spiritual thing that we do. If that were the case, we could earn it. We wouldn't need a Savior. But notice what it says here. Whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever believes is ransomed. Whoever believes has been set free. But then he says this, whoever does not believe is condemned already. And why are you condemned already simply for not believing? You're condemned already for not because when you don't believe because you're already condemned for your sins. We're all already in our sins. We're all already under the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of God. We're all in that state already. So by not believing, we're simply saying, God, I choose to stay like I am. I don't need you. I'm going to go into life and I'm going to go into eternal life and I'm going to say, I am, uh, take me or leave me like I am. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra sang that great song, I did it my way, I'm going into, I'm doing it my way. And God's going to say, suit yourself, you're condemned. If we don't believe, we're condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's not done the only thing that can deliver you from your condemnation, the only thing that can deliver you from the wrath of God. You've not done the one thing that not only is, is, it, is it free, but it's available. That which we cannot do on our own, God has done for us, and he's offered it to us free of charge. All you have to do is receive it and believe it. So what is the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost what is my mission in response to repent and believe and when we do we're delivered from wrath we're delivered from condemnation we're set free from sin and we have the hope of eternal life within us I don't know about you but I would say we got a great deal. We got what we don't deserve. And we got it because God loved us, because God is merciful, and because God is gracious.